0: Welcome to the Women in Business Impact Lab podcast. Maximize your leadership potential and professional advancement and be inspired. We're delighted to be your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development from a women in business perspective. We share our original research, explore industry and workforce trends and interview female executives, allies, and thought leaders from across the globe. Join us for practitioner-oriented content around all things women in business, leadership challenges, talent management, organizational development, change management, and diversity and inclusion.
1: Welcome to the Women in Business Impact Lab podcast. In this WBIL podcast episode, I talk with Deepa Purashathaman about how women of color can redefine identity and power in the workplace. Purishothaman, welcome to the Women in Business Impact Lab podcast. It is great to be with you today. You're joining us on this beautiful Monday morning from the LA area. I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. And today we're going to be talking about how women of color can redefine identity and power in the workforce. Now, I'm coming to this conversation as a straight cisgender white dude, um, but you have come to this conversation as a woman of color. And so I'm really excited to learn from you as we go through this dialogue and hopefully expand my understanding and thinking in this area, and hopefully we can do the same for listeners as well. As we get started, I wanted to share Deepa's bio with everybody. Deepa Pershothaman is the co-founder of Information, which provides brave, safe new spaces for professional women of color and a woman and public policy program leader in practice at Harvard Kennedy School. Prior to this, Deepa spent more than 20 years at Deloitte and was the first Indian woman to make partner in the company's history. Deepa was also Deloitte's national women's initiative leader, the firm's renowned program to recruit, retain, and advance women. Deepa has degrees from uh, Wellesley College, Harvard Kennedy School, and the London School of Economics. She is an Aspen Fellow and speaks extensively on women and leadership. She has been featured at national conferences and in publications, including Bloomberg Business Week and the Harvard Business Review. What a stellar background and set of accomplishments. Uh, Clearly tons of uh, insights that you're going to be able to add to this conversation. Anything else you would like to share with my listeners by way of your background or personal context before we dive on in?
0: Yeah, maybe just the book. And so um, I had a book that came out uh, March 1st of this year. Um, It's on women of color and finding power in corporate America. And I interviewed over 500 women of color to write that book. And so a lot of what I'm going to talk about today, yes, draws from my own experiences, but also draws from the stories of over 500 women of color.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. And we need to be telling those stories more and more. I was uh, having a conversation with um, a consultant in the DEI space last Mm -hmm. week. And that was really the crux of, of what we concluded was there just needs to be far more storytelling, um, so that we can develop more empathy and understanding for the various circumstances and contexts in which people are trying to just navigate this world. And it's messy. It's hard. Uh, it's a it's a fraught space when, when you're trying to have these conversations in the workplace, and especially when you get a bunch of white dudes like myself. We you know collectively there tends to be just insecurities and defensiveness and those sorts of things. And so all of that just um, needs to be broken down. And the best way to do that is through storytelling and and to help people walk in other shoes a little bit, at least a little bit. Yeah. Um, to better that's, understand whether that's exactly
0: from. why I wrote the book and why I did it the way that I did. I could have probably talked to 20 women and told the stories, but I really wanted to have yeah. the breadth across industry and across ages and across experiences. And so it was really important to have that. I'd also just share just, just to kind of set the stage because I, I have been doing so many, you know, talks around the book that I feel like everyone's in the position that you're in. Like this is such a fraught topic. It's so hard, but I also want to share, I think it's hard for women of color, you know, part of what's challenging is we haven't, talked about these issues. We've talked about them in small groups or maybe privately, but we haven't really talked about them a lot because there hasn't been reward for talking about them or even acknowledgement that the differences exist. And many of us, you know, what was most fascinating um, in interviewing all these women of color is very few of the women of color I interviewed were taught how to talk about race at home. So many of us didn't grow up talking about it. So it's not like we know how to do it either. We know how to tell our stories, of course, but I don't know that we always have the words around race or what the experience looks like. And because there's so much to Denial growing up around what's happened, or just keep working hard or doing more. I think a lot of us are still sorting through it. So just, just, just I think we're all we're all struggling is, is all I want to share on that side.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know as much about um, women of color specifically, mm-hmm. but I know there's a good amount of research on gender differences and how it plays out in in leadership styles and approaches in the workplace. And I, I suspect it's even harder uh, for women of color than it is for women generally. But certainly for women generally, uh, we we know that it's just harder to navigate um, these gendered spaces. You know, you're like walking a tightrope <laughs> uh, yeah. of, you know, trying to, to demonstrate all these competencies and capabilities without coming across and being perceived as too you know, quote unquote, too assertive, or, you know, whatever, you know, and, and I suspect for women of color, that's even more of a tightrope. And, and so not only do you have the struggles of of just trying to figure out how to put language around the experience that maybe you haven't been brought up talking about, but then you have this added layer of just the gendered differences in the Mm -hmm. workplace that make it even harder.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot there. I think there's absolutely the experience of it being different, right? And not having the words for it or fully being able to even draw attention to it. In the book, I say that corporate America is not a meritocracy, and sometimes people seem shocked when I say it, and all I'm trying to really break apart is that our experiences are different, and you can't just assume everyone has the same experience, that there are nuances that we can talk about. Um, the other thing is, right, there are stereotypes and microaggressions and racism that happen for women of color that, again, we haven't had full space to talk about. It hasn't been safe to talk about it, and almost all of the women that I interviewed had not just one story, but you know, dozens and dozens of stories, if it's not happening on a weekly basis and on a daily basis basis. And then on top of it, I think there are expectations and barriers around pay and advancement, even hiring that show up differently for women of color because of of the inherent biases many of us grow up with. And then finally, the extra roles that a lot of women of color take on that we don't really pay for or don't acknowledge and things like culture building or talking about race after, you know, a police shooting or, you know, really holding space to unpack the fact that many of us have very few sponsors and mentors, you know, because there's so few leaders that look like us. And so really, what does that mean for the few that women of color that sit at the top. Some of the women that I interviewed, you know, when I interviewed white women, they would say I interviewed 25 people, or I'm sorry, I, I mentor 25 people. Men would say I, I mentor a dozen. So we go from a dozen to 25 of its women. With the women of color, some of them shared with me, they were, in, you know, mentoring over 100, in some cases, 200 women of color, because there's not that ratio, there's none of them available. And so there's just all these extra layers that we again, don't talk about don't reward, and don't acknowledge that just make it harder to navigate. Navigate and harder, I think, sometimes to succeed and also um, balance just a lot of the health and the wellness issues that we've started to talk about as we emerge from COVID.
1: Yeah. And I, and I also think, you know, say there's a well-intentioned guy like myself uh, and I'm in a space and something like the George Floyd incident mm-hmm. happens and there's lots of public outrage and there's dialogue mm-hmm. and you recognize the need to have conversations. What, what tends to happen is that I immediately turn to the people of color in that kind of a situation. I I immediately turn to the people of color to say, can you please help us with this? And so then it just adds to their burden. And and on the one hand, I want people to be able to tell their stories. I want to be able to understand and to walk with them and, and to have greater empathy and compassion and understanding. On the other hand, I can't expect for other marginalized populations and, and groups of people who have struggled with all sorts of things that maybe I haven't struggled with, I can't expect them to just bear that extra load and burden yeah. just to enlighten me <laughs> and help yeah. me, abet- you know, understand or feel better, you know, and that's what often happens. So even if I'm super well intentioned, if I'm not careful, that ends up happening. And it just adds to the load, it adds to the barriers, everything that you just mentioned.
0: Absolutely. And I also think we're in a moment just to unpack the other side because I'm talking to a lot of allies who I call co-conspirators. I want people to take action, not just kind of watch as bystanders. I think it's also fraught on, you know, on your side, right? It's fraught because, you know, I tell a story early in the book around airplanes. I, I interviewed Renee Myers, and she's the um, VP of inclusion at Netflix. And we were talking and she started talking about airplanes and how when she was a young mom, she used to really worry about, you know, the, the luggage during turbulence that might f- fall on her young children. I jumped in right away because in my Deloitte partner role, I used to travel three cities a week. So I was on a plane, you know, putting my luggage up and taking it down six times a week. And so he, here in this five-minute conversation, she as a young mom was experiencing the airplane, this very small space, very differently. I'm 5'1, so that process of putting my luggage up is something I worry about before I get on the plane. I get very stressed about it. I feel like all eyes are on me again in a very small space. And if if I'm sitting next to a taller gentleman, five ten or taller, he's not even thinking about either of those things and so again that meritocracy idea but I also think what we're not realizing now and it's funny I did a a few podcasts and one of the podcasters asked me so if I see you on the airplane should I help you should I not help you I'm not sure as a white man like I don't know when to help and when not to help and I share that analogy just to unpack I think it's again confusing people now don't even know when to intervene or how to help and I just say I think you have to ask questions I think to your point we have to have more empathy we have to have more conversations we have to get to know each other as people and understand how experience. To show up differently, so then we can figure out when to intervene, when to just support, when just you know, when, when to maybe just kind of talk to the person afterwards. And so it is a, just a very confusing time, unfortunately. Is is what I want to say, right, say about it overall.
1: Yeah, and, and to your airplane example, mm-hmm. I, I would say to that person asking the question, "Should I step in and try to help you put your luggage up or not?" I mean. It depends, right?
0: Exactly. That's usually <laughs> it, it, what I say. That's exactly what I say. Like, it it ask, totally depends know? on the yes. person. And yes,
1: and so you might ask and, and yes. certainly don't just go up and grab the luggage and start to put yes. it up. Um, exactly. But yeah, it just depends. And so and that's something that, you know, maybe, you know, th- again, this is kind of a gendered stereotype, but men tend to step in and just want to fix things for people. Yeah. And so uh, I might be well-intentioned. I might see that someone's struggling on the airplane. I might want to just go you know, jump to action and jump in and and pick it up, but that's not my place. Um, but it's, it's, it's good of me to recognize that need and to want and be willing to help. Uh, but just then open up the dialogue and have the conversation say, Hey, would you like some help? Something as simple as that can go a really long way. Uh, and and then multiply that a thousand times by all the little interactions we have every day with people. Um, and I try, I try to go through that mental exercise and I'm sure I have so many blind spots, but you know, I'm, I'm not a super tall guy, but I'm I'm almost six feet, so that's tall, right? Yes, Um, yes, it is. (laughs) I'm white, you know. I I I don't consider myself particularly tall because Mm -hmm. I know lots of guys that are six two, six four, whatever, right? Um, But I'm I'm definitely taller than the average person. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a white man. I have so I have all these layers of privilege, Mm -hmm. and and I and I sit back and I try to think, what am I taking for granted Mm -hmm. that other people have to stress about, have anxiety over, and -hmm. have to spend a lot of time and energy navigating? Right. The answer is there's tons of things. And I'm aware of some of them, and others I'm just completely not aware of. And the luggage thing, honestly, before you shared that example, I'm not sure I've ever once thought about it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And that's usually that's usually the response. And again, I I tell that story in the book because I also say only two to three percent of designers were actually women when that you know stowage was designed. And so part of what I'm trying to unpack is that situations and environments and workspaces were also not necessarily defined with us sitting in those seats so they show up differently, like temperatures and even seat heights and table heights and all those kinds of things. And so it's just something to unpack. Again, I'm not I'm not saying everyone is a bad person. I'm saying like, so the environment doesn't necessarily work. So what do we need to do to lean in to kind of actually adjust right. it or make changes? So it does feel more comfortable. It does feel like more of us belong because that's, that's the big topic that is even more difficult to really unpack here is my sense of not belonging when I get on yeah. the plane in those first few minutes is huge because of that, that you may or may not feel, right? Because you're, you're maybe struggling with other things. Like, is there enough leg room for me? Like it's, it's a different conversation in your head. Um, and so just understanding that I think is really part of this. And so um, I think we just need to have more conversations. I think we need to be more open. I think we need to understand to your point that a lot of us have struggled through this from childhood. Like I've never seen anyone on television until the last couple of years, it looked like me. None of my teachers looked like me. I grew in a co- completely white town. I was one of five students of color in school. Again, we didn't talk about race at home. So navigating these spaces like with things, incidents happening, comments being said and not really having the understanding of their tools to realize that's really race and what we've been taught that has less to do with me as a person or me as, you know, my insecurities or my issues or my, you know, like I didn't trigger that, that's really about the other person. And so understanding that, like putting words to that, and then, you know, as, as an adult being able to take, you know, responsibility for what's mine and what's not in workplaces, I think is also what this work is about for women of color. I think a lot of us navigate these spaces and don't feel powerful. And what I'm trying to teach us is that we can set up boundaries. We can say no, we can kind of recognize what's happening to us and find tools so that we feel better in these situations, not that we're going to solve everything, but that we don't feel so powerless.
1: Yeah, yeah. And let's talk about that. Some of those approaches, some of those tools that can help women, particularly women of color, redefine identity and power. Um, That's the the title of your book. So let's talk about that identity and power and how we can go about developing that.
0: Yeah, you know one of the examples I talk about in the book, and I think it'll it'll speak to all of your listeners. So it's a good one, is around microaggressions and racism. You know, I think that until recently there was a lot of dialogue that those things don't necessarily happen in the workplace, or a lot of denial. And in the last you know, 24 months last, you know, two and a half years, there's more recognition that that incidents do happen in the workplace. And what I tell women of color is, you know, it's going to happen. It's happened to you. When I say it's going to happen in the next six months, most women of color jump in and say, it's going to happen in the next six days, right? Like it's pretty frequent. And some of the comments are really offensive. And some of the comments are, you know, maybe unintentionally just not, not appropriate or really uncomfortable. And so I tell women of color, literally practice three things that you're going to say, because you know, it's going to happen to you. So when an incident happens, when someone says something like, oh, you know, are you, are you, you speak English so well, you know, where did you learn it? And I was actually born here, right? Or, um, you know, you're so articulate, you know, I, I've never met anybody who, you know, is of your race and so articulate, like you actually have something that you can say. And so literally write out those three things. But then I also encourage women of color to practice saying them because so, sometimes in the moment when those things are said, we are caught flat-footed. We are embarrassed. There, A lot of the women of color I interviewed feel pain and shame in those situations in a way that is really confusing because they're not actually doing the saying, right? They're just being, they're having the incident happen to them. And what I've started to tell, you know, allies again, who I call co-conspirators is I want you to practice what to say too. What are the three things you can do when you are in a conference, you know, room or when you're on zoom and someone says something that is uncomfortable, you're also allowed to say, can we just unpack that comment? Or can we pause the meeting and just talk about that? Or at the end of the meeting, I would love to come back and really, you know, really discuss what was just said because it didn't sit well with me. That can be something that you do. Like that's the airplane analogy. Do you, do you do something or do you not? You're allowed to ask questions. And so literally writing those things out and practice saying them. So you're also not caught flat-footed is part of what this work is about. Again, it's a in that moment, not feeling powerful. How do you actually take your power back?
1: So being thoughtful in advance, practicing specific responses that can mm-hmm. help. Some people are great on the fly, great in the moment, but when stress and anxiety is high, even those who are 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 just always seem to have the right words right at the tip, on the tip of their tongue. Even then, it can be really challenging. And frankly, most people aren't like that in the first place. Most people yeah. don't have the exact right thing to say in the moment every time. And so, you do just have to practice. Yeah. Uh, you have to prepare. That can go a really long way. And to to do it in a way where you can acknowledge what was said, what was done, it hurt. It it was is an, an unfortunate situation, but also not putting someone else necessary. I, I suppose it depends on the situation, but um, you know, we're not for a small, unintentional kind of a slight, you know, not necessarily putting the person completely back in a defensive okay. posture on their heels, but doing it in a way where it can open up dialogue. Okay. So you can actually better understand each other. That's you know, what we want, I think the vast majority of the time. And, and unless unless we prepare in advance, it's it's the likelihood of of us saying the exact perfect thing in that moment is pretty darn slim. And, uh, and so I think that's a really great idea. uh, And a great recommendation. Are are there other stories uh, from your book that you would like to highlight that really just help to illustrate some of these key points?
0: you know there's one story i tell often because it was so impactful to me um i interviewed a black woman in the midwest and she was part of a large consumer products company when she joined her company she knew she was the only black woman in her department what she came to find within six months is she was the only one in the entire company and it was a pretty sizable company and as we were talking about 40 minutes in she shared with me that she believes she's the only black person in her entire town like maybe one of two or three and um, again, we were having a pretty intense conversation, and she started to really start crying and really feel the weight of what she was sharing with me. And she said, "Deepa, I don't know that I realized until this conversation how much I compensate or all the things that I do because I feel responsible for um, presenting or promoting all Black people in a good way. And, you know, air quotes around good, right? What she didn't, she couldn't even define what that was for me. And then she said, because I think I'm the only Black person my colleagues have ever met, and I feel very responsible." And in the book, I talk about five extra burdens or extra roles women of color take on you brought up one right after a police incident kind of the explaining of how that impacts me this culture um, interpretation role but here's another one it's representing your entire race and I it wasn't just her like she, hers was an extreme situation where she literally said it changes what I wear you know how I wear my hair what I eat at lunch what I talk about And she went through a list of a dozen things and again really upset because she didn't even realize she was taking on those roles and to be super clear she's an accountant she's not like an HR person, she's not a comms person, and yet she felt that was such a big part of her job and such a weighty part of her job, and she didn't even know that she was doing it, and so there's a lot to unpack there, but I share that story because I really want people and listeners to understand the kinds of extra things that women of color take on that we don't fully have words for and don't fully understand and how that can really weigh on us. Uh, The other thing I would share is that two out of three women I interviewed were physically sick. So not, you know, not just, you know, mental state, well-being, you know, types of conversations that I think we're having now, but physical manifestations of not being seen and heard in organizations. So skin rashes, headaches, adrenal fatigue, fertility issues, there's a list of about a dozen things. And so many of the women had these things. And I think it's a result And you know, I've talked to enough doctors and doing the research of not being in full voice of really having to conform and, you know, continue tort and produce in these situations where they don't feel like they can be themselves, right? Where they feel like they can they can rise and lead in the, in the ways that feel authentic to them. So I think there's a lot to be said. And so that's really what I've tried to do in the book is to really lay out how the experience of women of color is different in workspaces so that that more people can understand it. So that we as women of color can decide which ones we lean into and which ones we don't do. But as as co-conspirators or allies, so people can really understand and unpack how is it different and then figure out how we can work together to make it better.
1: Yeah, and, and you've already made a few references to this, but let's talk a little bit more about allyship mm-hmm. and how people like myself can be a, a more impactful ally, uh, one that is actually helping. <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's one thing for me to have a good intention, um, but it's another thing, you know, I might inadvertently do or say something that actually makes things worse that actually <laughs> um, undermines what others are trying to accomplish. Um, you've already mentioned, for example, practicing the types of things that I can say. I think that's a really great piece of advice. Uh, other thoughts or ideas on how to expand our ally network and to, and how people like me who are trying to be allies, what we can do uh, in preparation and in the moment to, to make more of a contribution?
0: I think one is really understanding that we are just beginning to create safe spaces and workplaces and really starting to listen in different ways. You know, after George Floyd's murder, a lot of companies did soundings with people of color employees. And when I go into companies, often CEOs, white CEOs will say to me, white male CEOs will say to me, like, my black and brown employees tell me how it is. An hour later, if I go sit with those black and brown employees, I hear a different, completely different set of stories. And so understanding we're just early in the process of creating safe spaces, creating places where people are telling their truth, and that just a one-time town hall isn't going to fix it. And that listening is a very I think we have to listen in different ways. And so that's the first part. I think the other part is really understanding that as leaders, you know, as co-conspirators, we have to give ourselves permission to get it wrong. Like you're not going to get it right every single time. And I'm, I would rather you try and step in it than not try. And so it's important to be brave and courageous and even a little uncomfortable and give yourself permission and grace to get it wrong. Those are probably the most important things.
1: I keep on coming back to something you said just a minute ago, where ultimately, it can be so challenging for, for anyone from, you know, a disadvantaged or marginalized population to navigate uh, a very set of contexts that for them, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you've just been born and raised in this context and you don't even recognize the toll it takes on you. (laughs) I I suspect that's often the case. Like you just don't even recognize the full toll because it's just your, it's, it's been your existence. It's how you've, Functioned in the world your entire life, and so so uh, we need to create safe spaces where where um, people can unpack those things for themselves, uh, where they can then uh, share their story and 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 be their authentic self and share their truth with others around them, Uh, and and then we need spaces where allies and co-conspirators can can also assist in that process to create these safe spaces. You mentioned a minute ago about just the health effects, for Mm -hmm. example. My goodness, I, I I, just don't, can't even imagine the extra levels of stress and anxiety, the weight that you would just carry with you walking around every day um, with some of these types of things that I just don't even have to deal with. Now, do I have stress and anxieties that I have to deal with? Yes, but I don't have those things. And so what extra level of burden, and then we know that stress and anxiety leads to other challenges. Um right mental health challenges, depression, but also physical manifestations. So unless we can really create these safer spaces, we're going to continue to have higher levels of, of negative health outcomes, uh, burnout, uh, and other things that only contribute to keeping, um, to, to keeping the, the equity gap in place, the equality gap in place. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of different fronts we need to kind of approach this on, um, but let's start and meet people where they're at, uh, and let's have the conversations. Let's, then let's move beyond the conversations to start actually, you know, taking a good, a good, hard look at the policies, practices, procedures, those norms that are embedded in the workplace that may often have zero relevance to anything other than it's just the way we've already, always done it. Let's dis uh, disassemble that. And, and really do things that make sense for people. All of that can only happen as we have these conversations and better understand each other.
0: I think that's absolutely right. I think we need to create spaces like we talked about. I think we need to understand what policies and procedures don't work. You know, a lot of the reporting processes within companies actually don't support women of color in telling their truth. They actually support the company. so to your point, there's probably less reporting is what the women shared with me than actual, you know, actual, you know, issues coming up. Um, I also think we just need to get better at doing more. You know, we did a research project with the Billie Jean King Leadership Initiative in the fall. And one of the pieces of data that I really talk about quite a bit is that nine 91% of the white women we interviewed, so we interviewed women of color and white women. 91% of the white women we interviewed said that they wanted to sponsor or mentor or support a woman of color, and only 9% were. So there's such a difference between intentions and follow through. And I think a lot of it has to do with where we are in the last couple of years. I think every, to your point, everyone's just surviving, not thriving. And so there's just not even that space, you know, the gap between intention and, and doing. And I also just want to share, we also have a lot of women of color exiting you know, workplaces because of these issues in, in a very different level, in a very different way. Two out of three women that I interviewed say that they're going to leave the workforce in the next year. And that was about a year ago. So I'm, I'm guessing it's even worse now. Um, and so. Really really understand the impacts of not starting to talk about this, not doing something different. There's such a desire and a race for talent right now, but you're also in a moment where women of color have more choices than ever before. And so if cultures don't change, if people aren't supportive, there's more places to go. And so that's kind of the interesting moment that we're in. We're talking about these issues at the same moment that, you know, um, we're in a, in a race for talent are really looking for people to stay in their roles. And this is a real yeah. moment, I think, to really also make work work for everybody. Like, even though my work is focused on women of color, a lot of what I'm co- covering are the challenges and workspaces in general and emerging from COVID. What are the new questions we're asking about how we all want to work and the space that work takes up in our lives and how do we do this differently so that it works for more people?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Deepa, it has been a real pleasure I know at the time I need to let you run, but before we wrap up for today, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can connect with you, where they can find your book, and then give us a final word on the topic for today.
0: Sure. So you can find me on my website. So it's Deepa Peru, D E E P A P U R U dot com. Um, the book, "The First, The You, The Only," is available everywhere. So wherever you buy books, you know, please go go buy it. It's out now. Um, and the last word is, uh, you know, I guess I would just leave with pe- people with this idea that we all have power. We may not feel like it in the moment, but we all have power. And it's really about finding, you know, your own boundaries and setting your own standards, and then finding others so that you're in community as you navigate these spaces. Um, you know whether you're a woman of color or not uh, we all need to find those both of those pieces our own voice but also find others if we're really going to step into our power
1: I love it I love it Deepa it has been a pleasure I encourage listeners to reach out get connected find out more about what Deepa can do for you check out the book and as always I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day and I hope you all have a great week Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Women in Business Impact Lab podcast. We hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.